This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome everybody. Great to have you with us again. I don't think I have seen an audio cut like this one that has really shown the difference between Americans who are trusting in the Lord right now and Americans who are trusting in government. Not that we shouldn't have responsible government, but I thought this was such an interesting clip. Did you see this? The New York City comptroller, a man by the name of Scott Stringer, just lost his mother, who is a former New York City councilwoman, to coronavirus, which is a tragedy. It's awful. But CNN's Anderson Cooper brought him on the show to talk about the death of his mother. And I thought it said so much about the worldview that has nothing of Christ in it. Listen to cut one. I understand she passed away just a few days ago on Friday. What was she like? She was a New York original. She was somebody who raised two boys as a single parent. She got involved in politics, ran for office when few women could see that success. She was tough and she loved the city and she believed in government and she raised us to believe in government. And for this tragedy to happen is just so overwhelmingly uh, sad for my family. But it's a story, Anderson, that I know is playing out across the country. It's playing out in New York City and it's so hurtful. All right. Did you catch what I was catching during that particular clip? His mother believed in government and she raised us to believe in government. And I thought to myself, did you not read everything that our founding fathers had to say about we, the people, and distrusting the, the divine right of kings and hello, I, isn't it part and parcel of being an American that we understand the government is not the solution. The government has to be restrained and controlled and held accountable so it will not run off the rails, so you will not be oppressed, so you will not be tyrannized. This is why we have a Bill of Rights, for heaven's sake. And I thought, what you know, I'm not, I feel sorry for this man losing his mother. Clearly, I'm not trying to be unsympathetic on that point. But I thought that was such a striking thing to say. She believed in government and she raised us to believe in government. Government isn't God. Now, it goes on here, and then he really outlines who he thinks is to blame for his mother's death. This is cut to. She sounds like a, a remarkable woman with incredible, what an incredible life she had. It was pretty, she, pretty extraordinary. She was somebody who took me around campaigning when she was running for city council. People would come up to her and say, why aren't you home taking care of your husband? She said, well, I don't have a husband. Why aren't you taking care of it? If I take care of him just fine. And she came from that generation of, of Bella Abzug and Shirley Chisholm and the women's movement back in the day. And if you had said to me what would ultimately have my mother fall, I never thought it would be some virus. And it is still hard to get around that. But yeah. look, in New York, in New York City, 
this is playing out in so many families. And I got to tell you, you know, Donald Trump has blood on his hands and he has my mom's blood on his hands. And he sent us a hospital uh, that's uh, that's right here in the Manhattan Harbor. And no one can get on that hospital. This is something that is just outrageous. And so it's very tough to mourn under these circumstances. You're, you're angry about that. I think we all are. I mean, the government's supposed to protect our people, and we're supposed to be able to protect our parents and grandparents the way they protected us, and we're not able to do that. Well, a couple of things come to mind when I listen to that. Trump has blood on his hands because his mother died of coronavirus. Did Trump come up with this strain of coronavirus in a lab somewhere and make sure that it got to the United States and wanted as many people as possible to catch it? It's just an insane claim. But what's even interesting to me that's not mentioned here is it says right on the screen on CNN that his mother died from complications from COVID-19. And we've seen these numbers. For example, USA Today had a story. The majority of New York's more than 4,700 deaths due to coronavirus were among men and 86% of all deaths were among people who had underlying illnesses like hypertension and diabetes. And this is directly from the New York State data. So what about that? If you had an underlying issue, and I don't know that she did, but he said complications from COVID-19. How is that Trump's fault? Not only that, but ProPublica is just out with a new report saying that when a mayor Bloomberg at the time, 14 years ago, 2006, released this pandemic plan for New York City and started stockpiling ventilators and N95 masks, it was current Mayor Bill de Blasio who later auctioned off the ventilators and disposed of the masks. So why in the world is this man not blaming Bill de Blasio for his mother's death? I think we all know the answer to that. You never blame a Democrat. The Democrats have hearts of gold, even if all the facts state that there were balls dropped. We're not supposed to pay any attention to that. It's Trump's fault. It's Trump derangement syndrome. But how terrible to politicize your mother's death. I mean, it's God bless him. I feel terrible for him. But, you know, don't go on TV and start making those kinds of remarks. It's not helping anybody. And it's certainly not true. Now, something else that really drew my attention. We have heard all kinds of models talked about and why we're all locked down and how long we have to be locked down and all these directives that we have about wearing masks and don't go out and it's going to be the worst week for deaths, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this was interesting. This is from the College Fix. They reported on this. A veteran scholar of epidemiology has warned that the ongoing lockdowns throughout the United States and the rest of the world are almost certainly just prolonging the coronavirus outbreak rather than doing anything to truly mitigate it. Knut Witowski Previously, the longtime head of the Department of Biostatistics, Epidemiology and Research Design at the Rockefeller University in New York City said in an interview with the press and the public project that the coronavirus could be exterminated if we permitted most people to lead normal lives and sheltered the most vulnerable parts of society until the danger passes. I want you to listen to what he said about the best way to deal with COVID-19. This is cut three. As with every respiratory disease, we should protect the elderly and fragile because when they get pneumonia, they have a high risk of dying of the pneumonia. So that is one of the key issues that we should keep in mind. On the other hand, children do very well with these diseases. They're evolutionary designed to be 
exposed to all sorts of viruses in, during their lifetime. And so they should keep going to school and infecting each other. And that contributes to herd immunity, which means after about four weeks, at the most, the elderly people could start joining their family because then we, the virus would have been extinguished. Now, that's interesting. We haven't been hearing a lot of that from the epidemiologist contingent, have we? And then he was asked whether or not he, what he's saying is that containment actually prolongs the duration of the virus. This is what he said. This is cut form. With all respiratory diseases, the only thing that stops the disease is herd immunity. About 80% of the people need to have had contact with the virus, and the majority of them won't even have recognized that they were infected or they had very, very mild symptoms, especially if they are children. So it's very important to keep the schools open and kids mingling to spread the virus, to get herd immunity as fast as possible. And then the elderly people who should be separated and the nursing homes should be closed during that time can come back and meet their children and grandchildren after about four weeks when the virus has been exterminated. That is fascinating. wonder if Twitter will edit him out. Asked about Dr. Fauci, the White House medical expert who for weeks has been predicting significant numbers of COVID-19 deaths in America. Witowski replied, well, I'm not paid by the government, so I'm entitled to actually do science. Hmm. Interesting food for thought. Hey, by the way, we are doing so great on our Bible League campaign. We're so excited. We're trying to send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians across the world. And we'd love for you to join us. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles and a gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles in the language of new Christians in Asia, the Middle East, and Latin America. Here's the number to call, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. We'll be right back. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. 3,100 Americans lost their lives yesterday. 
and the day before, not to the coronavirus, but to abortion on demand in our country. It's a tragedy of incomparable proportions, with over 800,000 weekly, globally, losing their lives. In the face of this, Preborn is offering free, compassionate, Christ-centered care and ultrasounds to girls in unplanned pregnancies. Would you prayerfully consider sponsoring an ultrasound for a girl today? Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Your gift of $28 will provide one free ultrasound and $140 will provide five free ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. Will you help a mom in need choose life? Just call now. 855-402-2229 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Just a few days ago, President Trump fired Michael Atkinson, the intelligence community inspector general, who set into motion the witch hunt that culminated in Trump's impeachment and eventual acquittal. The left, as we know, is trying to remove Trump from office out of sheer hatred under the false pretense that he engaged in quid pro quo with the Ukrainian president related to the investigation of former Vice President Joe Biden. Well, ironically, as Real Clear Politics pointed out, Joe Biden bragged in a January 2018 appearance at the Council on Foreign Relations that he had threatened to withhold military aid to Ukraine as a pressure tactic to force the firing of a prosecutor he didn't like. Why didn't he like the prosecutor? Because that prosecutor exposed some very bad things about Hunter Biden, Joe's son, who was, of course, tied to Burisma Holdings. Now, few people know all about this corruption, as well as my next guest, Republican strategist Michael Caputo. He worked for President Trump's presidential campaign in 2016 and became embroiled in the Mueller probe that destroyed the lives of so many innocent people, including his own family. He notes that the Ukraine problem started way before Trump got on the phone with President Zelensky, and he tells it all in his new book. It's called The Ukraine Hoax, How Decades of Corruption in the Former Soviet Republic Led to Trump's Phony Impeachment. Michael, it's great to have you with us. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. I hope you're doing well and your listeners. Yes, thank you so much. Well, there's so much to get in here. I know you have a lot of experience in Ukraine and in the former Soviet Union where you lived. You went through a nightmare, as everybody knows, with your family during the Mueller probe. What should people know about this Ukraine hoax, this idea that this all started with Trump's phone call to Zelensky? Because you lay out in your book and in a film that you've done, that simply isn't the case. No, it's not. In fact, it began decades before with the fall of the Soviet Union, as the, the West and Russia fought over Ukraine. Ukraine is you know, the borderland between the East and the West, and everybody wants to control it. If America controlled it, it's a problem for Russia and vice versa. But as the West uh, was dictating what Ukraine could do uh, to, to, to gain Western financial support as they, uh, you know, transitioned to a democracy, it became more and more embroiled in problems. And in 2014, during the administration of uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden, uh, there was uh, uh, the president of Ukraine decided that he was going to focus a little bit more on Russia than the United States. Nobody liked that, especially the people of Ukraine. And violence erupted on the central square of the, of the capital, Kiev, Ukraine. Right. The problem with all of that is that the United States was meddling in all of that, as was the West and Russia. And what began as a peaceful protest turned into 135 people killed. In fact, 100 murdered by snipers in 20 minutes. Mm. And after that happened, 
The, of course, the president of Ukraine fled to Russia, and the United States, Barack Obama and Joe Biden and their, and their diplomats, installed a government that then they went on to plunder. Yeah. Joe Biden was put in charge of Ukraine, Ukraine policy under Obama. And, of course, shortly after he was put in charge, his son joined the board of the most corrupt natural gas company in Ukraine and became a millionaire uh, thereafter. Of course, when your father is in charge of policy in a nation where you're getting rich, it sounds a lot like corruption, and indeed it was. Right. In fact, uh, Joe Biden delivered $3 billion in guaranteed loans to the oil and gas uh, industry of Ukraine. A lot of that went to the company that uh, Hunter Biden was on the board of. <sighs> and so, of course, that if that stinks to you, you know it stinks to me. Yeah. Well, you even say in the book it stunk to you when you learned what in about 2014 that Hunter Biden was going to be part of Burisma. You, you had red flags on that right away. I did. In fact, you know, I'm uh, a fill-in talk show host where I live in Buffalo, New York, and the, the announcement that Hunter Biden had joined the board of Burisma came across the wire while I was on the air. And I warned my listeners in 2014, watch this, because this is corruption. Yeah. And indeed, that's exactly what it turned out to be. And as I discuss in the book, there's a lot that, that, that world around that. Is it absolutely illegal for Hunter Biden to sit on a company and get rich while his father directs policy and billions of dollars toward toward Ukraine, perhaps. But what, what Hunter Biden did and his and his business partner, who also served on the board, did, he lobbied his father and the Secretary of State, John Kerry, directly, directly, and, it's, and did not register under the Foreign Agent Registration Act of the Department of Justice as is required by law. That is a federal felony. Right. That, uh, 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 Paul Manafort is serving time for that right now. <sighs> so we know there is absolute proof that Hunter Biden broke federal law, that he should be investigated and prosecuted for this. But nobody is doing anything about it. Yeah, it, it just it boggles the imagination. So when you're talking about that mass murder that occurred in Kiev, where you had 100 people killed by snipers, and we still don't know who's responsible, there, there still hasn't been any justice brought to bear for those people who were murdered. How does that tie into Poroshenko, the former president who wanted Obama's support, and Joe Biden then coming in? What was the motivation on the part of the Obama administration for all of this uh, beyond personal and enrichment, which the Bidens certainly took advantage of. Well, it really was, again, about the United States versus Russia and Ukraine being the borderland between the West and East, with the president, uh, Yanukovych, uh, leaning toward Russia at a time when the West really wanted him to join uh, the alliance of nations in the West. Uh, It looked to the United States like they were going to lose control of a country that kept Russia off balance. Yeah. So... Uh, when 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 that happened, by hook or by crook, the United States and the West, the European Union and others, and of course billionaires like George Soros, were were bound and determined to stop that from happening. So what happened? They, they the United States directly inspired uh, 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 protests on the square in Kiev called Maidan Square. Those protests went on for months and got worse and worse and worse. And more and more American politicians and American diplomats were mingling among the protesters on Maidan Square until suddenly a bunch of shots rang out from rooftops around the square. Nobody to this day knows who those snipers were, 
there are allegations and suspicions, but there have been no trials. Mm. And it's now six years later. Can you imagine no. if on Times Square in New York City, a hundred people were murdered by snipers on rooftops there, and we still didn't know who did it six years later? It's abominable. It but in fact, the United States diplomats, I don't think, are even interested because there's something going on behind there that have American and Western as well as Russian fingerprints on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more to dig into. What about the fact that Trump's call to Kiev in 2019 came after, way after, in fact, several years uh, after Joe Biden's multiple calls to Kiev in 2016? I had mentioned before what he had admitted about putting pressure to get the prosecutor fired. But what was going on with Joe Biden's phone calls in 2016? Well, it's very interesting because Hunter Biden joined the board of this, uh, this gas company as the uh, billionaires and oligarchs that were, that were uh, favored by the president that had fled to Russia. They all fled as well, including the CEO of Burisma, the company that brought in Joe, uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter. And just as Hunter joined, they were dishing up uh, sanctions against all those billionaires who would plunder the Ukrainian people and uh, had been favored under the, the now uh, exiled oligarch. He was out of the country being, and he was on the most wanted list, <laughs> on the most wanted list, which nobody wants to talk about, and yet he was never sanctioned. <laughs> and that brings the suspicion that somehow Hunter Biden, through the power of his father, Joe Biden, made sure this billionaire was not sanctioned. And so when, when there was an investigation going on, and Joe Biden was talking about how the prosecutor was corrupt and he wasn't doing investigations. In fact, the, the, investi- the, the prosecutor, his name is Shulkin. These names get rather complex. <laughs> Shulkin, the one that Joe Biden pushed to have fired, was truly deeply investigating. Yes. And right about the time when, uh, in January of 2016, when the prosecutor was confiscating millions of dollars of property that belonged to uh, Hunter Biden's new boss, suddenly Joe Biden got really interested. And one day after another, there were half a dozen phone calls, a flurry of phone calls, when this billionaire's properties were seized. Bentley limousines, mansions, gas wells all across the country were being confiscated. And so Joe Biden stepped up the pressure on the new president, Poroshenko, who he had installed, and and to make sure that uh, that the investigation stopped and the and the and the Hunter Biden's boss was had all of his properties returned. If one phone call from the president of the United States asking for legal investigations was some kind of scandal, this sudden flurry of concerned telephone calls from Joe Biden to the president of Ukraine to stop the investigation into his son's boss. That's a conspiracy. That is widespread corruption. And if, if Donald Trump got in trouble for, for a, a legal phone call, certainly Joe Biden's sudden flurry of telephone calls should be investigated. No doubt about it. You know, one of the things that also really strikes me is you say what's at stake in all of this is the danger that it all poses to Americans and our way of life. Can you explain just briefly what that danger would be? Well, in fact, the, the problem we have is that this uh, violent uh, revolution, this violent coup in Ukraine, uh, that took place. It's actually one of many that have taken place, all steered and commandeered by United States diplomats and people like George Soros, the American billionaire, yeah. who invests deeply in these emerging markets. He works hand in glove 
with the American State Department. And one by one by one, if you look at Serbia, you look at Georgia, you look at Ukraine and all of North Africa, each of these countries fell. And billionaires like George Soros made a ton of money. Yep. And in fact, those uh, the diplomats who worked around those situations are all very deep in, in, in private sector now, making millions. Well, Joe Biden's oil and gas advisor is now serving on the board of NAFTO gas in Ukraine. That board gets paid millions of dollars. The problem we have is this. George Soros and his cronies overthrew governments that they didn't agree with. What do we see today? Yep. Who's paying for all the advertisements against Donald Trump today? It's Soros. It's George Soros. There you go. Exactly right. Well, great book, The Ukraine Hoax, Michael Caputo. So good to have you, Michael. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. All right. God bless. And we'll be right back on Janet Meffer Today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Remember when William J. Buckley Jr. famously said, I should sooner live in a society governed by the first 2,000 names in the Boston Telephone Directory than in a society governed by the 2,000 faculty members of Harvard University? Well, if he were still alive today, there's no doubt that Buckley's opinion would remain the same. College campuses are not only overwhelmed and largely dictated by progressive political thought, but they've also become hotbeds for the suppression of ideas and free speech. What has this done to the entire endeavor of higher learning? And is there a solution to it? We're going to talk about it today with Dr. John Ellis, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of German Literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He founded the Association of Literary Scholars and Critics and served as president and now chairman of the board of the California Association of Scholars. And today we'll be talking about his book. It's called The Breakdown of Higher Education. Dr. Ellis, welcome. Great to have you. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Well, thank you. You know, a lot of us have been very appalled by a lot of the situations you've discussed in your book, these campus riots that we've seen, people like Charles Murray or Heather McDonald shouted down and attacked on college campuses. I'm curious how you view this situation in the broader context of the breakdown in higher education in general. Well, it's a very serious situation. I mean, parents and students are paying very large sums of money for higher education. And they're not getting it. Yeah. I mean, uh, higher education is something that always used to teach people to think for themselves, to look at problems, analyze them from different perspectives, understand them, break them down into different parts, and basically learn how to think productively in a a heightened way. That's what a higher education is for. That's not happening. In fact, the reverse is happening because now what you have is political radicals on campus who want students to stop thinking and, and just simply believe in their political ideology. So if a kid asks a question, a searching question about that political ideology in the classroom, he gets shut down. Yeah. Uh, because the, the political radicals who now are in those classrooms running them don't want questions asked about socialism. They just want you to believe in it. 
So actually, what's really happening is worse than kids not getting an education. It's worse than that. They're getting a miseducation. They're getting their thinking processes shut down. Yeah. That's true. It's a real scandal. It, yeah, it it's is. It's a terrible scandal. It is. You're absolutely right. And I thought it was very interesting that you said the censorship of ideas happens long before it becomes visible at events like these public lectures where these speakers are shouted down, which is why students have learned to shout these ideas down. So can you take us into the classroom a little bit and talk to people about what goes on in the classroom that kind of sets up the situation for the students to behave as they're behaving? Well, um, to back up a little bit, I mean, the, the, the prevailing standard of behavior for university professors always, be that, always used to be that they had to stay off politics in the classroom. Now, you know, there are, there are laws in California, for example, where I teach. The, the Constitution says the university must be kept free of, of politics hmm. and free of political influence. Now... In, when I was uh, just beginning teaching, people used to respect that. that you mustn't proselytize in classroom. You mustn't push your political ideas in the classroom. Now that's that's completely broken down. That consensus. Professors in the classroom are very free with their political ideas. So you even get people like, say, professor of mathematics. It's probably nothing to do with mathematics. They will rant on for five minutes at a time. <laughs> about their, their their political ideas, no one stops them. Uh, you know, years ago, a dean, if he heard about this, a dean's job was to make sure that uh, no one was abusing the classroom. Right. Now, the deans hear about it, they look the other way. They know very well if they tried to stop it, they'd run into real trouble from the radical faculty uh, who would, um, you know, who would criticize them. Yes. So uh, it's very widespread. Um, the the campuses are now run by political ideologues. The majority are political ideologues. Kids can still find a good academic teacher if they look hard enough, uh, but it's getting increasingly rare. Each year it gets worse because older professors retire. Mm-hmm. and are replaced by radical. So the remaining good section uh, is getting smaller all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're currently up to something like uh, the left-right ratio on campus, something like 13 to 1 now. Goodness. Um, and it's getting bigger all the time. So, uh, And any time you get um, an overwhelming majority politically in one room, it gets more extreme. Sure. I mean, you know, if you put in in the in the same room, people all agree with each other. Uh, pretty soon, they'll they'll reinforce each other's opinions, and their opinions get more and more and more extreme because there's nothing to correct. There's no one on the other side to say, you know, you're getting a little uh, out there. Yes, uh, that doesn't happen. Uh-huh. So the the brand of left politics you hear in university classrooms is way to the left of what you hear in public. 
It's awful. And you're right. People are forking over big bucks to send their kids to college and, and they expect they're at least going to get a disciplined education. And yet that's what you're talking about in your book, that disciplined thinking is largely yeah. not taught where you're really trying to examine some of what the great thinkers of history have said and examining the evidence in any particular subject. And you're trying to let the evidence guide you in what you ought to embrace. And it's just not that way anymore. But what is it like for anybody on the faculty who might disagree with the prevailing progressive thought? Do, do they usually dare speak up or what happens if they do? Well, they have real problems. I mean, the, the numbers are so small now um, of people who disagree that an awful lot of them just simply hide. I mean, I know on my own campus, I know a few people. Um, it's a sign of the times that I wouldn't give you their names. Right. Because their lives would be made intolerable if I did. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, no, they keep their heads down, and um, that's one of the signs of the, uh, the the sickness, that there is no open debate on campus. If someone speaks up in favor of, for example, uh, you know, the, the, the current Republican regime, uh, the, the uh, President Trump's uh, administration, they would have a very, very hard time of it on campus. I mean, mm-hmm. there would probably be a riot. Uh, there would probably be a demonstration against them. Um, there is no tolerance of other points of view. And, of course, where you have no tolerance, so the, the main thing is, it's, it, forget the question of people being tolerant for, for a moment. You cannot have a discussion if, the, if in fact, one side is effectively shut down. No. So... Opinions, I mean, uh, issues, ideologies can't be examined. They can't be looked at. They can't be, uh, you know, sort of um, examined for their strengths and weaknesses. That's not possible because one side dominates, and that's that. There is going to be no discussion of its strengths and weaknesses because the controlling majority won't let that happen. Dr. Ellis, would you say that it is going too far to say that a lot of what the students are getting on college campuses today is not so much an education as much as it is just propaganda? I'm afraid that's true. You know, it's a horrible thing to say. I mean, of course, there there are classrooms. There's still the occasional professor who's old school. And if the students are clever enough to find them, then they'll get a decent education. Uh, The sciences, um, you know, you probably can still get decent classes in science for the moment anyway. uh, But the very strong science of the radicals are trying to colonize the the scientists as well. Um, But if you take... The uh, at least two thirds and probably more of classrooms, yeah, propaganda is not too serious a word to employ to describe what's going on. By which you mean simply that uh, the aim of the class is to inculcate a particular belief and not to analyze that belief or not to analyze any other beliefs. That's right. Not to analyze anything. That's right. That's right. And that's not supposed to be what education is. We're going to come back. Dr. John M. Ellis with us. And his book is called The Breakdown of Higher Education. We'll come right back on Janet Meffer today.
If you could ease the suffering of a persecuted Christian right now, would you? Hi, it's Janet Mefford, and I know you would. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those who are persecuted, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere suffers, we suffer together. These believers live where evangelism is criminalized, where churches are burned, and where Bibles are scarce. They need the hope found only in God's Word, and your gift today lets them know they're not forgotten. For only $5, a believer like Anna in Africa will receive a Bible, be discipled in her new faith, and trained to share Christ. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20, and a limited time Bible for Bible match will help us meet our goal of sending the hope of God's Word to 1,200 persecuted Christians. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Once again, call now, 800-YES-WORD. From Kingdom Story Company comes I Still Believe. Available now for home viewing on demand. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe reminds us that amidst life storms, true hope can be found in Christ. You chose willingly to walk into the fire with her. That's what love is. I Still Believe. Starring KJ Apa, Rit Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. More information is available at IStillBelieveMovie.com. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back. It's hard to believe that when you look back in history, the free speech movement began where? At UC Berkeley. And now it's the place where free speech is suppressed. And that's the case across the country at a lot of our institutions of higher learning. Dr. John M. Ellis is with us. The Breakdown of Higher Education is his book. And we're talking about what has gone wrong in higher education. Dr. Ellis, one of the things, I mean, it's such a great book. You go into so many different details that that will be very important for people to read and understand. But when you're talking about how we got here. You trace it through a number of different situations. We think of the Vietnam War era. We think of the rise of, you know, what happened in the 60s. But you also talk about the rise of identity politics and diversity rather than excellence becoming something that is stressed. Can you speak a little bit to the problems that have been, you know, growing over the last several decades that got us to where we are now? Well, the, there's no doubt that there, there, there are two big things that uh, allowed higher education to go wrong. One was the massive expansion after the Second World War. You know, people's lives were interrupted by the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And when soldiers came back from the war, they started families. And so there was what we call the baby bulge, right? The, yes. the, 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 the tremendous amount of new births. 45 to 1945 to 50 and so about 1965 that that baby boom hit college age and um the result was that higher education public higher education had to more than double in size now when you suddenly have a demand for new professors to be hired and and the demand is actually 
greater than the number of the existing professors. So you take the, take the number of all the existing professors in the nation, and then you've got to double that overnight almost. But very difficult to do uh, to, and keep quality up. Now, but what was appalling was that ex- that was exactly the moment when the Vietnam War roiled the, the campuses. Mm. And so there was a great deal of left radicalism promoted by the d- discontent among students over the Vietnam War. So at exactly the time that you needed massive numbers of new professors, the people you were going to have to hire from were mainly radical. Mm. It was a horrible, horrible historical accident. Mm. And undoubtedly, that's the main reason why we're in the mess we're in today. But then identity politics continued that um, because once you start to, you know, hire people, not because they're first-rate scholars, but because they fill some identity niche, you know, you need more people of a certain kind, uh, whether, um, you know, ethnic minorities or, or women. Once you start to do hiring by that, you have an eye on something that's not academic excellence and that automatically weakens what you're doing but it was actually worse than that because it because the people who are clamoring for more black professors more women professors the people doing the clamoring were actually radicals themselves (laughs) and they tended to take charge of the hiring so they hired so basically it was an excuse to hire more radicals yeah right and that's what really happened uh, and the combined effect of these two things meant that um, oh, by about the year uh, 1990, you already had a very, very strong leftist uh, control of, of the campuses. And people often say, well, you know, uh, the, the left is always at home in the university. It's always that way. But that actually is not true. Hmm. Back in about 1965, you had something like uh, three to two preponderance of left versus right. So, you know, you've always had a, in the past, you always had a healthy debate between the left and the right on, on the campuses. Yes. Uh, but but in a pretty short time, about a 30-year span, what you had was an overwhelming majority of the left, and not just the left, the radical left. Yes. And the radical left has no conscience. Mm. You know, I mean, liberals do have a conscience. Uh, they really want to see a, a literate society and a, a humane uh, um, society. Radicals are, are, are people for whom the creation of their leftist utopia is so important that nothing else matters. And so you can abuse any institution you like. I mean, you can use the universities to do things with the universities that will destroy them. But provided you get to the radical utopia, it's all justified. And that's why radicals are so dangerous, and they now run the the campuses. Well, they do. They do. And you've got all these new generations of students coming up, and a lot of them come from more conservative homes. And then conservative parents like we, uh, we think, you know, in our home, what, where do we send our kids? What do we do? We want to get them into a place where they can actually have this kind of education with disciplined thinking and learn how to, you know, work through particular, um, you know, historical situations and evaluate the way they really were, as opposed to the spin that, you know, Howard Zinn sort of material 
would put on whatever happened in history. But th- this is a this is a problem, though, because I, I talk to a lot of parents who say, I don't know where to send my kids. And, and it is an arm and a leg. But if you don't go to college, how will you ever get a good job? And I do believe in you know educating children anyway. And educating college students is an important part of life. How do we fight back against this? Is, is it all lost or shall we shall we deal with it in a more forthright way? What do you suggest? Well, the first step is for parents across the country to come to the realization that they are not getting the education they're paying for. And that's the first step for people to understand that. I mean, sure, we all want our kids given a higher education. But we've got to grasp the fact that they are not being given that. And they are not coming out after four years. They are not coming out with the skills that they used to have so that there is no point in sending them to college. (laughs) Uh, They get a diploma, but but people are increasingly skeptical about the value of those diplomas. So so I think what needs to be done is uh, across the country, I mean, the, the... the citizenry of this country has to face up to the fact that higher education now is a disaster, and they have to demand that something be done about it. Um, and they themselves have got to um, stop paying for, stop funneling money to support this massive fraud that's going on. Yes, because they, it is a fraud. I mean, in any walk of life where you give money for one purpose, and the person you're giving it who takes it and uses it for something completely different, that's called embezzling. That's what's happening. That's That's true. I think parents are the ones who've got to wake up to the fact that this is nonsense. They're spending enormous amounts of money and their kids are spending several years of their lives for nothing. They're not getting what they're paying for. Once, once the I'm, I'm a firm believer in the fact that once the universities see their funding threatened, once they see their jobs threatened um, by the realization from, from parents that this is not working, there is some chance of reform. But, but, but for people to keep feeding this beast, keep funneling money into the same same pursuits, as if it was the same kind of education that we got 50 years ago. Uh, if they keep doing that, they're, what they're doing is um, they're enabling the present academic establishment to keep doing what it's doing, which is not what we want. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, and the problem is, I know from a journalism, uh, journalism background, what happens is not a lot of conservatives go into journalism. And it seems that in academia, the same problem is there that people who might be more conservative or might, you know, even classically liberal and committed to the principles of discipline thinking may look at academia and say, I don't want to enter that cesspool. I mean, isn't that part of the problem, too, that people who might be better at being you know, in the scholarship area and in the teaching arena, hesitate to go into higher education circles because exactly of what you've been talking about with the radical leftism, they don't want to deal with it. Yeah. Well, I know several people who who take one look at what's going on and decide they don't want a career in higher education. Uh, you know, I had a friend uh, a few years back who uh, was settling into an academic career. This was about 20 years ago and notice what was going on around him and abruptly changed course and went into business. And he was potentially a brilliant academic. He just couldn't see a future for himself 
on a college campus dominated by political radicals. Yeah, you can't And it probably, that. from his point of view, that was smart. But what it means is that the, the process of the radicals taking over is uh, assisted by the choices being made by more conservative people who, who look at this and are revolted by it and don't want any part of it. You're right about that. Well, it is a great book. It's called The Breakdown of Higher Education by Dr. John M. Ellis, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of German Literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Loved your book, Dr. Ellis, and it was so kind of you to be with us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me and for your kind words about my book. Oh, you're very welcome. It's really a great resource, and thanks again for being here. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today, and we will see you next time. God bless.